Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Hi, I'm Alan, a grateful recovering food addict, kind of a little new at Zoom. Um, let me just try to put up a photo. My top physical weight was 335 pounds. See if this works. Uh, well, I'm sorry to interrupt. How long for the time? How long for the... Uh, um, reminder for... Can, Lori, can you give a reminder after 15 minutes? 15 minutes, okay. Uh, are you guys seeing a photo of me by chance? We're seeing the sky. Oh, well, that's not good. Let me try one more time. Uh, let's see. Um, um, now are you seeing a photo of me? Yes. Okay. Yes. So that was my top physical weight uh, at 335 pounds. Hopefully you're seeing me again now. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So um, I've never shared at a free thinkers meeting before, which is cool because I'm not religious and I'm a free thinker, but we don't have free thinkers meetings where I'm from. So I kind of really thought I would just try to think about why do I really think OA has worked for me from a more open perspective as a free thinker? Um, mm -hmm. So just, just the quick numbers. I've been in OA a little over 30 years. Um, I've been absent about 25 of the 30 years. Um, it's not been continuous. I've had three relapses in 30 years. So I've had as much as 14 years back to back. I currently have about five years back to back. So it's like 25 out of 30 with some pretty bad relapse in there. Um, as I mentioned, I'm keeping off 150 pounds. Um, and so that being said, um, my first OA meeting, um, I walked into it, I was 20 years old, um, and um, people were all in their 50s, they were very overweight, and they were all talking about Jesus Christ. And I like freaked, I thought this is a cult of fat Christian people, and this is so not for me, and I like ran out, just ran away. Seven years later, someone enticed me to come to an OA meeting, and it was a different experience. Um, people were just telling really bizarre things they did with food. And I remember one woman said that she would be at a restaurant, and before um, food was bust from tables, she would actually grab pieces of food off of people's tables, you know, half-eaten sandwiches and pieces of pizza or whatever, and eat it before the busboy took it away. And I had done that. And I had never heard another human being, human being admit to having done that, you know? And I was like, oh my God. And other people told other things, stealing food, hiding food, shoplifting, like all this crazy food behavior. And I was like, wow, there's other people that do what I do. I mean, I knew there was other fat people, that's obvious but I never thought much about how they got fat or you know what happened. So like I just identified, I am with a group of people that have a common problem and that power of identification was so powerful. And then the second thing is they had a solution. There was some way that they were gonna not be fat. And there were people there who got up and said, I didn't keep it off my weight two years, five years, seven years. So I was like, wow. This is a place where people have my problem and have lost weight. So I was kind of pretty interested at that point. And so I kept coming back. And then um, in other meetings, people started sharing really vulnerable personal things. 
people shared that, you know, they were abused as children, that they've been through bad divorces, bad job situations, difficulty with their parents, like, like all the stuff you hear, like really personal, intimate stuff. And I had never heard people share things like that. Never, ever, you know? And I realized it was a safe space to share brokenness, to share woundedness, to share trauma. And I had like this boatload of trauma that I never shared. And just to sort of give you some sense of it, um, my dad cut out when I was an infant and I was raised by my mother largely. And my mother struggled with mental illness, some combination of severe depression for sure and possibly schizophrenia, not quite as sure because it was the 1960s, you know. Um, but what that looked like to me is that my mother couldn't hold a job and we didn't have a dad. So we had to go on public assistance and we lived in what you would call an inner city ghetto in New York City. And I was uh, virtually like the only like little white fat Jewish kid in a pretty much Latino African American neighborhood. And it was a really violent gang ridden neighborhood. And I was beaten up literally once almost beaten to death with a baseball bat, being hit in the face so my face was sore for a week. I mean, extreme physical violence just going out of my door. I remember when I would go to school, I would have to think which way to go to limit the possibility of being beat up just going to school. It was petrifying. And I didn't have a father to quote protect me. And then my mother, her uh, main way I saw her mental illness was an extreme depression where she made multiple suicide attempts while I was living with her. And you know, it was just me, I had no siblings. And starting when I was about 10 or 11, she started asking me to kill myself with her. So I have memories of my mother literally handing me a bottle of sleeping pills, a glass of um, can of tab of all things, if you can imagine. She was overweight and always dieting. If you remember what tab is, that old diet soda. And she would tell me to, to take these pills and die with her, to escape. And I would beg, literally beg for my life and just cry that I didn't want to die, I didn't want her to die. So at the earliest age, food was the thing to do. I mean, thank God for the refrigerator. Thank God for the candy store, the ice cream truck. You know, that was really food saved me as much as it killed me. Um, when I was 13, my mother overdosed for the third or fourth time, but she didn't die. But because of multiple suicide attempts, she lost legal custody of me. She went to a psychiatric hospital, a place called Creedmoor in New York, which is a bit of a historical snake pit. It's known as one of the worst hospitals in our country's ever had and I went into a foster home. So I tell you all this because when I went to these initial OA meetings, um, people were sharing things like this, and so I started to share this stuff. And when you think about it, if you weren't in therapy and didn't have really deep, close friends, who in the world would you tell that, you know, your mother used to ask you to kill yourself, you know? Or, uh, and I, you know, later realized that I was an incest survivor, I was sexually abused starting at a really young age. I mean, I had all this, major trauma, physical, psychological, sexual abuse that was part of my history. No wonder I was 300 plus pounds at age 20. So um, OA meetings created this safe space where no matter what I shared, there was acceptance. There was acceptance, there was support. There may have not been solutions or answers, but I can't, I often say OA would be, if OA was nothing more than a safe space where people just talked about their food stuff, listen to each other unconditionally and try to just help each other with no other method, it would be worth the price of admission. It would be incredibly powerful, just that. And so uh, I started, 
you know, coming because of that. And I'll tell you, I often like to say that OA was my gateway to recovery. You know, we talk about like a gateway drug. OA was my recovery gateway because when I went there and I shared that I was sexually abused as a child, people said to me, you know, OA probably can't do a lot for you with this. But there's this thing called Survivors of Incest Anonymous. Like, like here's the phone number, you know, and I ended up going to that fellowship. And people say, you know, your mother used to ask you to kill yourself. That's kind of beyond what a sponsor might really be able to help you process. You might want to seek therapy, you know, and it just became um, a vehicle to point you toward other forms of healing and therapy, which I needed because of the level of trauma that I've been through and abuse and stuff. And so um, it really just became this, um, this gateway to recovery. And so once I started coming to Hawaii, I really liked the fact that I identified, you know, there was a, a vision of recovery, there were samples of recovery, and there was a safe space. Um, the first thing I learned to look at was the food. What actually are my food problems? You know, what are the specific foods that when I start to eat them, I can't stop? Like my problem foods. Uh, what are the issues around my behavior, my frequency? And, you know, I learned and I got a nutritionist to help me that I didn't do very well with candies and sweets and desserts. I just, there was no such thing as one donut for me. If I went into a donut shop, we're I've literally eaten several dozen donuts over the course of a few hours, several dozen, literally. I mean, just me and donuts, you know, or fill in the blank, you know, I could name pastry and sugar thing after sugar thing. It just wasn't there. Certain other foods, you know, like the breads and the butters together and pizzas and all the kind of like, you know, high sugar, carb, starchy, fatty combinations, you know. So I just learned that those foods I, I just don't do well with. I just don't manage them well. Uh, and then I learned that it's good to just eat three times a day or maybe three in a snack, that like eating through the day as you feel like it, when you feel like it, didn't work for me. I just didn't work for me. And then portion control. I didn't understand portion control. I just ate usually till I felt sick. That was my sense. Like if I could put anything more in me, I stopped till I could put more in me. That's, that's how you gain 170 pounds in four years, which I once did. Um, so we just started looking at the block and tackle, you know? Uh, knock these foods off your list, eat three times a day, find some way to portion it. Maybe it's precise on a scale, maybe it's eyeballed, but and so just getting the physical food down or starting to get it down is incredibly helpful. And then having the support, people you could talk to about it, write about it, call it in, get feedback, discuss it, you know? And so another fundamental principle I learned of OA is we help each other, you know? It's a, it's a we program, you know? Uh, you know, I'm wearing this shirt. It was at a conference called OA is my higher power. And, you know, it's a higher power because it's the connection. You know, it's like, you know, we do what, you know, we cannot do alone. You know, this, this powerful interconnection. Um, so I started, uh, you know, getting my food clear and understanding it, moving toward having food that made sense. Um, and then, um, and when you, and, you know, when you think about the steps, right, the first one was like realizing I had the problem. And the second step was realizing that, you know, OA offers some kind of solution, a power other than me. Like, I can't do it, but we can, you know, the, the we power versus the me power. Um, and then, you know, um, the third step to me was just sort of like, just keep going. Don't worry about the words, because I don't like the word God, but just keep going, you know. Um, so, and then the fourth step um, was an interesting one, because, you know, the fourth step is, you know, searching a fearless moral inventory. 
And I always found the word moral kind of curious because, we, you know, morality, what is morality? You know, if you really like study it, you know, university level, there's morality is a very subjective thing that, you know, is very culturally specific and kind of a, a complex topic. But um, what we really mean in a way I learned is much more of this emotional inventory, more looking at your feelings and some of your patterns and your history and starting to look at that. And, um, that's what I realized that it was much more about. Um, I, I started to realize that I think where it came from is that in AA in the 1930s, you know, the classic examples where, you know, I stole from my boss, I cheated on my wife, I didn't do this, I, you know, like these kind of truly classic immoral blunders. And they had to kind of clean it up because there were these sort of alcoholic idiots running rampant in, you know, Ohio or New York, do whatever they wanted to, messing the world up around them. And they had to, you know, get moral. But I realized that for most OA people, we're often victims of trauma and abuse, and we are much more the victim than the perpetrator. So it's not so much that we are immoral, just have to look at the fact that we went through childhoods that drove us into mass overeating because of the abuse we got. So it's much more about, you know, an emotional inventory for me. And, you know, there's so many different ways that people do fourth steps, like there's this version, big book and workbook and that book and this book. And I've come to believe they're all good places to start. You know, I've probably been through a half dozen plus formats of how you could do fourth steps from OA, from AA, from workshops. People made them up and, you know, flyers and matrices and it doesn't matter, you know. It just, you sort of just start to look at the stuff and how, you know, and it's a lifelong journey, right? Self-reflection and integrating into who you are now. But you just sort of start that process, um, you know, and share it with another person. When I think about the sixth and seventh step, it's really like you just start to identify patterns that you've looked at and you start, if the patterns don't serve you, you try to have less of those patterns. You know, um, the way I like to sometimes phrase it is that, you know, like uh, the music never goes away, but it starts to get softer and you recognize the tune and maybe more quickly you can change stations, you know? Um, like, you know, one of my big patterns is, maybe my twoist is, uh, you know, catastrophic thinking and um, like fear of abandonment and insecurity, you know? Cause, because I had a catastrophe, right? I had my mother asked me to die while I didn't have a father. I mean, that's, that's catastrophic, you know? So particularly now in this pandemic world, you know, I very quickly start to think, oh, it's gonna be like, you know, one of those dystopic novels where gangs of marauders go around with guns and, you know, shoot each other, force in their refrigerator, right? Like my brain quickly turns to dystopic science fiction, you know, and I very quickly say, okay, Alan, thanks for sharing. For today, you're in your suburban home, you know, petting your doodle, hanging out with your girlfriend. It's, it's, that's, that's not the world of today. It's 15 minutes, Alan. Okay, thanks. So in any case, um, so you just start to see the patterns and more quickly turn away from them. Um, and let's see, um, continuing on, you know, I did the, you know, the eighth step. I had 75 things on my eighth step list. And when I looked at this giant list, I realized that if I was going to go through all these apologies and refunds and all sorts of things, um, I needed to make a shift in worldview. My basic worldview had been very simple. Do Anything you want, as long as you don't get caught, it's okay. It doesn't matter what you do. If you don't get caught, it's okay. That was my basic rule for life, kind of a narcissistic survivalism. And 
I realized if I was going to make 75 amends, I needed a new worldview. And the worldview was very simply, if you're going to make a behavior, any action, think about how it affects others. Balance my needs with the needs of others. You know, call it like the me-we balance. And just to shift. And that was this major shift in worldview that, you know, I got in my late 20s. Probably most people got when they were four when they had to share toys with their sister. But I, I never got that lesson until I was in my late 20s. And it was, it was a big thing. Um, and then um, the 10th step, you know, I think it was just continuing to take this outlook of just, just being reflective on life and being you know, aware. Um, you know, the, uh, the 11th step is probably a difficult one if you're non-religious, right? But so through prayer and meditation. Uh, and so I, you know, the way I really think of that is to be better aligned with the world, to be better aligned with myself and to be better integrated into the world. Um, couple things that really help me is um, positivity. When I say positivity, I mean intentional positivity, gratitude exercises. Um, if you, you know, Google books on positivity, they're out there. There are some really good ones. If it's not a violation of tradition, there's a guy named Martin Seligman out of the University of Pennsylvania. He's done great research on um, psychology of positivity with ways to do it. And I like some sciencey, so I like psychologists who've done good research and good data and Seligman but had some good stuff. So, you know, I read books on positivity, practice positivity. I listen to positive music. I'm on positive email serves. You know, I get um, lots of things through my day that look for the glass half full, but in an intelligent way, not in a Pollyannish way. And simply because if I'm positive, I'm more likely to be better to myself and better to others, you know? And I had so much negativity thrown into my brain patterning as a kid. I'm like just on a lifelong mission to rewire my brain to be optimistic and loving and kind. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the 12th step, you know, practice these principles in all our affairs, you know, um, you know, help other members of OA and try to bring some positivity in the world. I'm, um, I'm a blessed life. I do a lot of things that help the world. I do done work with infectious disease in South Africa with TB. I've done stuff to help remove uh, landmines in uh, parts of the world. Been able to work in a number of areas where I actually can make tangible differences to improve the quality of humans' lives. And, um, and it feels like a real blessing when I can, you know, particularly at scale, make a difference in the world. But even also at the smallest scale, like being helpful to my partner when she's having a bad day. You know, it can be small, it can be big. I, I love that line that, you know, um, I cannot do all the good that the world needs, but the world needs all the good that I can do, you know? So I believe deeply in trying to bring as much goodness into the world as I'm capable of, knowing goodness itself is subjective. Um, and then I'll just use my, I guess my last couple of minutes to tell you a little bit about what I try to do on a daily basis. Um, I take the first three steps every day, to me, step one is just remembering the disease, remembering the binges, playing the videos in my head of those binges. Step two is thinking of the fellowship, the people holding hands, the circles, the people, the connection, the power of OA is a power greater than me. Um, I reword the step three in my mind, but in short, to be aligned with the goodness of the world. Um, so I take the first three steps every day. Um, I sponsor several people. I probably spend three to five hours a week talking to sponsees on the phone. I go to a few meetings a week. I uh, do service at a number of different levels. Um, I, you know, 
read pretty much daily, meditate most days. Um, so I have a pretty robust OA program. I eat three meals a day, rarely anything in between, occasionally for some reason or other, but pretty much follow a pretty simple food plan. Um, at night, I do an inventory. Maybe some of you have heard of the A-E-I-O-U-Y thing. It goes around, uh, the, you know, the vowels, A for abstinence, I inventory my abstinence, E for exercise, did I exercise, I did I take care of myself, O how was I to others, U is what can I uncover, uncovers, um, I think of the, you know, your RDA's recommended daily allowances, so R is for resentments, D is dishonesty, A is, um, or is I afraid or scared, and S was selfish, and then Y is why am I grateful, and I just really try to do active gratitude. Um, I do a couple other things that would take a while to explain to them, but I do a lot of things to intentionally put myself in a positive space. I mean, sometimes I literally look in mirrors and say kind things to myself aloud, making self-eye contact. I'm just a deepest believer in uh, intentional positivity. Um, and so, so I think, you know, I think OA can be a very rational program, you know, a very rational, logical program. I, um, words, I don't need a sense of God or higher power or spirituality. When I, when I use the word higher power, I just think of, you know, if you look up power in the dictionary, it just means something that has an effect on something, you know, something that can make lights go on, something that can move water, something that can turn turbines, it can have an effect. And so OA can have an effect on me. OA is a power that allows me to have the effect to be abstinent. And that's really all I, you know, I don't even like the word higher because that sounds kind of like religious, like heavens and this and that. So, you know, but, but it doesn't matter, you know. I try not to get too caught up in the words. My, my partner is a professor of linguistics and she'll often tell me like, a word is just a reference pointer to a set of concepts and you know it's really how you want to map it there's nothing fundamental about the word you know don't get too obsessed about you know a language languaging of an idea it's really the idea behind it and so the idea behind it is that uh, this group of people working together where we identify with each other have some sense of a solution figure out quite what our problems are with food clarify it support each other Try to do some introspective work to, you know, be in a better place. So, see the watch. So, in any case, um, so with that, I will I will end. Uh, thank you for letting me share, and uh, I will uh, be absent with you the rest of tonight.